Well, you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19 as we continue through the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, if you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible of your own, um, we have some hardback black ones sprinkled around the room. And if you don't have a Bible, grab one of those. You can use it for the service today. And we would love for you to take that home. Even if you think, I'm never going to read that, you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. So please, that's our gift to you. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of those hardback ones. Matthew chapter 19 is where we're going to be this morning. And we're going to be verses 16 through 22. Matthew 19, 16 through 22. Uh, now in our day, our modern era, with smartphones, with GPSs on them, uh, it's not as common as it used to be to ask for directions, right? We, we usually can get the answers by Googling it or typing it into Apple Maps. Um, but there are still occasions when the GPS doesn't show your destination and you need to ask somebody for help, right? Unless you're a man. <laughs> Unless you're a man. Men, we don't like to ask for directions, do we? Um, I was reading an article the other day that uh, said men every year on average spend 20 more miles driving around than women because they're lost and won't ask for directions, right? Um, why? Because we don't need to ask for directions. We'll get there eventually. Am I right, brothers? Uh, but there is one destination that by ourselves we will never find. There is one place that we will never on our own be able to reach. And the road to this place is so contrary to our natural ideas that the directions on how to get there are so against what we would normally think that unless somebody else gives us directions, we will never know the way. And that place is, is heaven, or, or to be more accurate, Eternal life in the presence of God. If you want to know the directions to eternal life, the map to get there, then pay close attention to the words of Jesus in our text this morning. Let's go ahead and read, starting in verse 16. Behold, a man came up to him, to Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go Sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Let's pray together as we hear the word of God. Oh, our Lord and our God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, that this question about how to have eternal life, this question about how to get to heaven is one that your word so clearly answers. Now, Lord, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark about that question, but that even here in these six verses this morning, you give us a clear picture of what we must do to be saved. And yet it's not what we might expect. And so, Lord, I ask that as we hear the teaching of Jesus Christ this morning, as we hear your word, that you would open our ears that you would soften our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would bring the truth of your word to us and help us not just to understand it, but to live in light of it. 
Lord, I pray for your help, that you would help me to be clear and encouraging to your people. That your church would be built up and your name would be glorified. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you were here the past few weeks, we've been going through Matthew 19. And uh, Jesus, at this point, is going from Capernaum down to Jerusalem. And he, he, on this journey down there, is surrounded by this large crowd. And throughout Matthew 19, different people from the crowd have been approaching Jesus uh, for different reasons. And we see at the beginning of the chapter, the Pharisees approach Jesus, and they try to test him about marriage, divorce, remarriage, what's permissible, what's not. And we saw last week that parents are bringing their children to Jesus to be blessed by him. And in our passage this morning, we see a man come to Jesus with a very important question. A very important question. Now, the Gospel of Luke uh, it tells us in the same, the same event, it tells us that this man was a ruler. He's a wealthy, young Jewish man who occupied a, a high position in society. Um, now, throughout the Gospels, we don't often see the rich coming to Jesus. But here, uh, it's an exception. Right? This rich young man comes to Jesus with a very important question. And look how he addresses Jesus in verse 16. The, the, the very first word of his question, teacher. It's teacher. Now that might not seem significant, but if you've been with us for a while throughout Matthew's gospel, we've seen that people approach Jesus and address him in one of two ways. They either address him as Lord or they address him as teacher. And what we've seen so far is that those who address him as, as Lord address him in faith. They're coming to him with true faith. But those who address him as teacher do not. They don't approach Jesus with faith. Now that doesn't mean that this rich young ruler who calls Jesus teacher, it doesn't mean he's being deceitful, it doesn't mean he's being insincere, but it means that he's not approaching Jesus with faith. And that's going to become very important as we will see later in the text. And the rich young ruler asked Jesus an important question. He says, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? <clears throat> what good deed must I do to have eternal life? What do I need to do in order to go to heaven? That's his question, right? Uh, and that question really is at the center of this passage. Uh, and in, 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 in many ways, it's a question that's at the center of the Bible's storyline. And this question reveals two important things about this rich young ruler. First thing it shows us about him is that he believes in eternal life. This rich young man approaches Jesus wanting that. He, he believes there's something after this existence, and he wants to have it. Right? He wants to obtain it. He, maybe he's heard Jesus talk about eternal life on other occasions, like we see all throughout the Gospel of John. He comes to Jesus assuming Jesus knows how to get to heaven. Jesus knows the answer. And, and that's a good desire, isn't it? It's a good desire to want to have eternal life. It's a good desire to want to go to heaven. That's not a bad thing. Uh, many, many people today, of course, think that when you die, that's the end of things. That's it, right? The machine is shut down. It's just blackness. And they, in other instances, just tend to avoid the topic of death completely. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to talk about it. We just pretend it's not there. But not this man. He's considering what happens after this life is over. He wants to know about eternal life. So we see here he believes there is something after this life. And he's right. The second thing that this question reveals about this rich young ruler is that he believes he can get eternal life by doing good deeds. He believes he can go to heaven by doing good deeds. 
He assumes that he is able to be good enough and do enough good things to earn his way through, through the pearly gates, right? That he can be good enough for God based on his own performance. That's the basic map. Those are the directions that this man is using to try to get to heaven. Work your way there. Right? He's asking Jesus, which exit do I need to get off on this road of works? This road of good deeds. Now this question here is the same question that many religions in the world today and throughout history are built on. Islam, for example, teaches that you must practice the five pillars of faith, prayer, fasting, giving, pilgrimage. Hinduism teaches that you must purify yourself from evil throughout each successive reincarnation. Buddhism teaches that you must walk the noble path the right way in order to reach enlightenment. Mormonism teaches that you must obey all the teachings of Joseph Smith and the presidents of the church in order to go to the highest level of heaven. Roman Catholicism teaches that you must do the work of going to receive the sacraments along with faith. And rabbinic Judaism, which is the religion that this young man here in our text belongs to, teaches that you must obey the law well enough, and that's how you get eternal life. Now, even non-religious people tend to think this way as well. Uh, maybe you're here this morning, maybe you'd say you're spiritual, not religious. Maybe you wouldn't identify as a Christian, and very glad you're here this morning. If I were to ask you, how, how, how do you get to heaven? Uh, assuming you believe there is a heaven, of course, you'd probably say something like, be a pretty good person, right? Be a good guy. Uh, yeah, you, you have a pretty good shot, right? This man's question is really the question that most people in the world might ask. What good deeds, what things do I need to do? What's the work I need to do in order to have eternal life, in order to go to heaven, in order to be saved? That's the question most people are asking. And what Jesus says next might seem like it doesn't really have anything to do with this question at all, but, but in fact it does. And Jesus' response to him in verse 17 is, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. This rich young ruler has asked about good deeds. What good deeds do I need to do? But now Jesus is actually challenging this young man's standard of goodness. Because this rich young ruler's standard of goodness is actually much too low. And most people who are trying to earn their way to heaven tend to use other people or themselves as the standard of goodness. But here Jesus says, there is only one who is truly good, and that is God. That's God, right? That's the true measuring stick of what is good. It's not you, it's not me, it's not society's ideas, it's God himself. He's the standard. Psalm 119.68 says that God is good and does good. His inherent nature is pure goodness. He's good all the way through. But his goodness is not weak. It's not compromised. It is a pure and perfect, consuming goodness. Uh, God's very goodness defines what he loves and what he hates. Why does God hate wickedness? Because he's so good. The theologian Stephen Charnock writes that the goodness of God is the measure and rule of goodness in everything else. Here's what it comes down to. You cannot define what is truly good without using God as the standard. 
You cannot define what is truly good without using God as the standard. He gets to set the bar. He gets to define the terms. And Sharnak points out just how good God is. He says God is originally good, meaning he's the source of all goodness. Any goodness in your life, any goodness you see in yourself, that's because of God, not because of you. He says God is infinitely good, meaning there are no limits to his goodness. We have limits, don't we? We have breaking points, don't we, right? God does not. He is infinitely good without limit, without measure. He never runs out of goodness. He's perfectly good. That means there's no gaps, there's no failures in his goodness. He's not less good one day, more good another. He's immutably good, meaning his goodness doesn't change ever. His goodness can't be separated from who he is can't be separated from his perfect essence. So when Jesus talks about God's goodness here, he's talking about perfection. He's talking about perfection. But this rich young ruler views God's goodness as something that's flexible, some, something that's, that's compromising, right? Something that um, maybe will give me a little slack if I was 80% good, right? He supposes that simply doing good deeds is enough to meet this standard. Um, that's lowering God's standard of goodness to our level. And that's not where God belongs. Right, this rich young ruler is aiming for adequacy and not perfection. Right? And that's the reality that he and we must deal with. If, if you're going to uh, try to earn your way to heaven, if you're going to try to do good deeds to get eternal life, you must understand that requires an absolutely perfect life. God does not grade on a curve. He doesn't grade on a curve. It's pass or fail. Now Jesus is starting to reveal the problems with this rich young ruler's fundamental question. And what he's going to do throughout the rest of the text is he's actually going to just kind of walk down this road map that this rich young ruler has. He's going to walk down this road of earning your salvation and he's going to show him why that's impossible. He's going to show him that. In verse 17 he says to him, well if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Keep the commandments. In other words, if, if you want to earn eternal life, then do the good things that the one who is good says to do. Now, now again, we might hear this and wonder what Jesus is saying here, right? After all, if you're a Christian, right, you're, you're thinking, well, salvation's by grace alone, through faith alone. It's not by works. What is Jesus saying here? If you'd have eternal life, keep the commandments, right? Is that, is that works-based salvation? Well, Jesus is not lying here. He's not lying here. In fact, the only way anyone can enter eternal life is through obedience to God's commandments. But the question is, whose obedience does God take into account on Judgment Day? It's going to be somebody's obedience. God is a just God. He's going to deal with every sin that's ever been committed. Obedience is the entrance into heaven. But whose obedience? And we'll answer that later. But Jesus tells this young man who's bent on earning his way to heaven, keep the commandments of God. Keep the commandments of God. Obey his law. And in reality, we cannot understand our need for the grace of God if we don't start with his law. Um, throughout the Bible, God places his commands before his people with the promise that if they obey his commandments, there will be blessing. But if they do not obey his commandments, there will be a curse. And God does this in the context of a covenant. A covenant. That's a, a solemn relationship between two parties. A covenant. Uh, we, we can go back to the Garden of Eden. Let's turn back to Genesis chapter 2 real quick. Genesis chapter 2. God creates Adam in a covenant relationship with himself. 
And in Genesis chapter 2, he gives Adam a command. He gives Adam a law. Genesis chapter 2, 16 and 17. Here's what God says to Adam. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Right? The, the, the curse is there. If you disobey my command, you will die. There will be a curse. The implication, of course, is if you obey my command, you will enjoy life. And we call this the covenant of works because it's depending on Adam's obedience. Right? Or, or think about Israel on Mount Sinai. God makes a similar covenant of works with them. He says in Exodus 19.5, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. If. That's a very important word, isn't it? If. That means if not, something else will happen. As a nation, Israel's covenant relationship with God depended on their obedience to his commands. We see the same thing as the second generation of Israel is getting ready to enter the promised land in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. Uh, God has tribes go up on these mountains and shout curses back and forth to each other about disobeying God's law. They, they are reminding each other what will happen if they disobey God. And they end by saying, cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. Disobedience is a curse. But then it's followed up right at the beginning of the next chapter. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. Disobedience leads to what? Cursing. Obedience leads to what? Blessing. So God does say that obedience to his commands brings blessing. And theoretically, just think hypothetically with me for a moment. If there was a person who inside and out, every single second of their life, obeyed God perfectly. All of his commands, never sinning, but only doing what was right. If such a person existed, they would earn eternal life. They'd keep all the commands. They would earn it. They'd get the reward. But let's go back to the standard of God's goodness. What kind of obedience would this have to be? In the words of the London Baptist Confession, it would have to be perfect, Perpetual, entire, exact, and personal. There's a lot of adjectives right there. Perfect, perpetual, entire, exact, and personal. If somebody could obey God's law that well, maybe they could earn their way to heaven. Maybe. Friends, that's the standard this young man is putting himself under. That's the standard you're putting yourself under if you're trying to work your way to heaven. Perfect obedience, perpetual obedience, entire obedience, exact obedience, and personal obedience to every one of God's commands. We read one of them this morning, and I doubt there was a person here whose heart was not pricked by realizing, ah, one I have not kept. In reality, such obedience from any one of us is impossible. And when Jesus says, keep the commandments, Jesus is not encouraging this man to work his way to heaven. But in the words of Charles Spurgeon, Jesus sets the rugged way of works before him, not that he might attempt to win eternal life, but that he might perceive his own shortcomings and so feel his weakness as to look for salvation, not by the law, but by some other method. That's what Jesus is doing here. But the rich young ruler has not come to that place yet. He hasn't arrived there yet. 
as we see by his next question to Jesus in verse 18. He says to him, he says to Jesus, which ones? Which commandments am I really accountable for? It almost seems like he assumes some of them are more necessary than others. Uh, maybe he doesn't have to pay such close attention to these ones over here, right? These are really the big, the big mamajamas, right? The big ones. <laughs> big mamajamas. You can quote me on that, and you probably will. Um, now, maybe you have the same mindset, right? And maybe you think, as long as I don't murder somebody, as long as I don't have an affair, as long as I don't steal tens of thousands of dollars from my boss, I'm probably okay. I'm a decent guy. I should be fine. Maybe that's your mindset, right? Selecting some commandments and putting them up here. Uh, but what about the first commandment that says, you shall have no other God but me? We don't think about that one very much, do we? What about the commandment that says, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? I don't think about that one very much, do we? Breaking one of God's commands, any one of them, will send you as quickly to hell as any other. If you're going to earn your way to heaven, you must keep every command perfectly, perpetually, entirely, exactly, personally. Not just the ones that are socially acceptable, not just the ones that make you look like a good person in society, right? God's view is much, much deeper. But once again, Jesus gives here an unexpected answer to this man. Right? He's, he's kind of playing along with it. And he gives him a little list of commands here in verses 18 and 19. He says, okay, well, you want a list? You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus is kind of going easy on him. There were 613 commands in the Jewish law. 613, and Jesus only mentions six, right? One percent of all the commands, right? He's going kind of easy on him. So it would seem. He lists five of the Ten Commandments, adultery, murder, stealing, bearing false witness, and honoring your parents. And he lists another command from Leviticus 19.18, which really summarizes all of God's commands about our human relationships. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus says. Okay, do this. Let's, let's start there. Right? Do these six. This would have actually been a pretty typical response from a Jewish rabbi in Jesus' day. But Jesus' answer is deceptively simple because Jesus is not like any other Jewish rabbi of his day. On the surface level, these, these five commands from the Ten Commandments, they're pretty easy to observe, right? You can, you can see somebody commit a murder, right? Adultery can be documented. Honoring your mother and father can be easily observed with the eyes, right? Just go to Walmart. You'll see it all over the place, right? Stealing, can, these are all external things. Right? They're pretty easy to observe. Maybe you are considering your own life. Right? You're thinking about these five commandments. Okay, well, I'm doing pretty good. I haven't committed homicide. I haven't had an affair. I was a pretty good kid. right? Or at least, you know, I honor my parents more now than I did then, so I think I'm doing okay. I'm making progress. I haven't stolen a lot of things. I must be doing okay. But Jesus has taught earlier that God does not just consider the external friends. He, he judges the heart. He judges the heart. And that's where we're so afraid to look, isn't it? Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 27 and 28, we read this or heard it this morning. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
Now consider that applied to every single God of God's commandments, every single one. Okay, maybe you haven't committed homicide, but Jesus says if you hate another person with anger, sinful anger, you have a murderous heart and God will judge you accordingly. Maybe you've never embezzled at your workplace, but have you stolen from your employer by putting in less than you could as an employee? Maybe you've uh, never robbed your neighbor's garage, but have you coveted that sweet sports car that's sitting in there? When we bring it down to the heart level, the law of God feels much, much heavier, doesn't it? Much heavier. And it's really the last command Jesus gives this man, you should love your neighbor as yourself, that um, really should open his eyes to how, how far short he's falling in keeping God's commands. This, this should be the clincher right here. And in, in a few verses, it actually will be this command that will crush this rich young ruler under the weight of its demands. But we can see here, right, as we look at what Jesus is saying, that the path of earning salvation by works just gets steeper and steeper, doesn't it? That the route is becoming more impossible to climb the more we think about it. Is this really the roadmap that this young man, or per, perhaps some of you, are committed to following? Do you really think that you can obey God's commands perfectly enough to enter his holy dwelling place? The, the rich young ruler apparently thinks he does, that he can. And in verse 20, he says to Jesus, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? All these I have kept. In, in Mark 10, 20, he even goes so far as to say that he's kept all these commands from his youth, from being a child. I don't know how much time y'all have spent around children, but I'd be pretty skeptical of that claim right there. And, and maybe he was a decent and moral man, right? Maybe he was a pretty good guy by Jewish religious standards. But, but Jesus is going to push on this house of cards here. He's going to push on it a little harder because keeping the law externally is not truly fulfilling it. And even this rich young ruler, he recognizes there's something missing. What does he say to Jesus at the end of verse 20? What do I still lack? What do I still lack? Even with his external obedience, saying, I've kept all these commands from my youth, he realizes there's something else he must do, that he hasn't met the standard, that it's still there out of reach. He, he at some level is empty and unsatisfied. There must be something else I can do, he says, to have assurance that I have eternal life. What is it, teacher? And this is the case with those who try to work their way to heaven. A constant fear that you haven't done good enough. A constant fear, a worry perhaps, there's still something that you, you didn't take care of and that when you die it's going to be that one thing that disqualifies you from heaven. But it'll be too late. Maybe you have those fears, those worries. Maybe you wonder, well, I'm trying to work my way there, but what do I still lack? Maybe you're asking the same question as this rich young ruler in our text. And Jesus is about to do two very important things. He's about to crush this rich young ruler under the weight of the law, and he's about to show him the true and only way to eternal life. Uh, Jesus is about to unroll the map that maybe some of you this morning have been looking for. In verse 21, Jesus tells the rich young ruler what he lacks, but notice how he begins, if you would be not good, not good enough, 
perfect. If you would be perfect. Let's think about that for a moment. Jesus has been hinting at this all along, hasn't he? And it is now fully brought out into the light. God's standard of goodness for everyone is perfection. It's perfection. Jesus says this very thing in Matthew 5.48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If you want to earn your way to heaven, you have to be as good as God. Right? No, no, no big deal. No pressure. You have to be as good as God. Right? If, if you want to stand before God on judgment day and present to him all of your good deeds, the only way you'll be getting into heaven is perfection. And we haven't even talked about sin. We haven't even talked about the negative balance, right? We're just talking about trying to do good deeds. Now, can you honestly say that before God, you have lived in perfect obedience to every one of his commands inside and out? That's the standard that this rich young ruler will be held to and that you will be held to. And, and Jesus tells him what he must do. Well, if you want to be perfect... Go, sell what you possess, and give it to the poor. Now, is Jesus really saying, if you do this, you'll earn eternal life? No, that's not what he's getting at. He's lowering the bar a bit just to show him that even when I drop it down, you still can't reach it. Now, let's think about this for a minute. This is really... Nothing other than obeying the one last commandment Jesus gave this rich young ruler. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is just the fulfillment of that command, isn't it? That's all Jesus is calling this man to do. Sell all your possessions. Give it to the poor. Love them the way that you have loved yourself. It appears that this is the major area in this man's life where he has had no regard for keeping God's commandments. And Jesus now makes very clear just a hint of what perfect obedience to this commandment would look like for this rich young ruler. And Jesus says, if you do this, you'll have treasure in heaven. If you have perfect obedience, you'll, you'll earn treasure in heaven. Now, some of you are perhaps worried that um, you need to sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Right? Is Jesus saying this command's for everybody? Well, I'm not going to tell you you shouldn't do that or that you should do that. But that's not what's happening here for every single person. Jesus does call us to sacrificial generosity. But what Jesus is doing here is he's putting his finger on the core love of this young man's heart. This rich young ruler loves his possessions more than his neighbor. And if he loves them more than his neighbor, he probably loves them more than God. If we think about it that way, now we have the first commandment. You'll have no other gods besides me. And the second commandment, you shall bow down to no created thing being broken. We need to understand, Jesus is not preaching the gospel here. This isn't good news. He's letting this rich young ruler see just how impossible it is to earn his way to heaven. That's what he's showing him. This, this is just adding one more law. right? Imagine you know, you're carrying a, a backpack full of big rocks, and it's heavy, but... Okay, I'm doing all right. I'm doing okay. I'm feeling really tired. My muscles are starting to give out, but I can go just a little further. And then, and then your, your, your friend walks up and puts one more rock in the backpack. You're going back like that, right? That's what Jesus is doing here. He allows this man to feel the full weight of the perfect law of God so that he would realize he cannot carry it. 
so that he realized he cannot obey it perfectly. He cannot meet the standard of perfection. He can't do it. Uh, and friends, I hope that if, if you're not a Christian, that if you're feeling the weight of the law, don't be in denial about it. I pray that you realize it's an impossible task to obey God at the standard He would demand of you in order to earn heaven. God's law realistically cannot bring you there because you cannot keep it. You cannot keep it. There has to be another way. There has to be another way. Now look what Jesus says to this rich young ruler right at the end of verse 21. Come Follow me. Come, follow me. Jesus crushes this young man. And this is an act of mercy, friends. Jesus is not cruel in letting him feel the weight of the law. This is an act of mercy. He crushes the young man under the weight of the law and then points to himself. He points to himself. Galatians 3.24 describes this very thing. I love how the King James words it. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. When we consider God's law as the way of salvation, it should show us, it should teach us, it should teach you that you can never reach eternal life. It's like a schoolmaster giving you lessons you cannot complete to show you you must do something else. You must go another way. Sin has separated every single one of us from a holy God, and a good deed here and a good deed there will not even get you within sight of the ladder to heaven. Were there such a thing? The law shows us that in reality, we must turn to Christ. It's like a schoolmaster to teach us that we need Jesus Christ. We should look at ourselves, our sinfulness, our imperfection, and we should cry out, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, I cannot do this. Please save me. It should cause us to look at our own obedience and say, that will get me nowhere but hell. And to look at the Lord Jesus Christ and say, only you can save me. Not my obedience, but yours, Jesus. It's, it's not good news that you can't keep the law of God. It's not good news that you can't earn your way into heaven. If that's all there is. It's a dead end road. That's not good news. But here is good news. Here's the roadmap Jesus is laying out here. This is the gospel. That means good news. That God sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to live that perfect life, obeying all of His commands perfectly, to live righteously, and then to die in the place of sinners like you and like me, bearing the punishment that we deserve on the cross for our sin and law-breaking, and then giving us His righteousness as a gift when we believe in Him. That's good news. We call this double imputation, right? Double imputation. All that means is that when we believe in Jesus, our sin is imputed to Him. It's put on Him. And His perfect righteousness is put on us. He wears the garment of our sin. We wear the garment of His righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Remember what God's standard is? It's Himself. And He has made it possible that we would meet it, not by our works, but by Jesus's. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 
Friends, the gospel is the good news that Jesus has done it all and that by trusting him, by faith, and faith alone, you simply get to receive his righteousness, his forgiveness, his atonement. Good news is not, I must do this to earn Jesus. Good news is that Jesus has earned all for me. Friend, if you believe in him, you will receive that free gift today. That's the roadmap that leads to eternal life. Jesus himself makes it so clear. John 6, 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. There's one road to eternal life for sinners like you and me, and that's through Christ Jesus. So if you are on that road of self-righteousness, on that road of working your way to heaven and earning salvation, um, I want to warn you now, the bridge is out. You will not get there. Friends, the reality is sobering and serious. If you continue on that road, you will fall off into hell. Because the reality is, is that we are far worse than we think we are. And God will pull all of that back on the final day. But in his love and compassion, he's provided another way that does lead to eternal life through faith in Jesus. So turn aside to the path that Jesus lays out, faith in him. And the rich young ruler should have done that. He should have done that. Right? He, he has the Savior right in front of him. He should have come to an end of himself and said, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. But he doesn't. He walks away from the Savior sorrowfully. And in one sense, he should be sorrowful as he, as he feels the weight of the law. But at the same time, he's so focused on earning his way to heaven that he misses the Savior right in front of you. Right in front of him. Right? The giver of eternal life is standing right there and this rich young ruler walks away from him. Remember, he has no faith. He's not approaching Jesus in faith. And so he does not see this is the Savior God has provided for him. He merely feels the weight of the law. And I want to encourage you, because it's possible to be like the rich young ruler in two ways. It's possible to walk away from Jesus and go, you know what, I think I can keep the law. I think I'm going to do it. It's also possible to walk away and say, I'm too sinful. I've done such a bad job keeping the law that not even Jesus could save me. Both of those are the same mindset. That you could somehow earn your way to heaven, right? Same mindset. Just different ends of the spectrum. Don't leave here today like the rich young ruler. Don't leave here prideful in your obedience or sorrowful you cannot earn your way to heaven. Turn instead to Jesus who can and will and does save all who come to him in faith trusting and receiving his perfect righteousness. Rest in his righteousness, friends, not your own. He has done it all. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Oh, our Lord and our God, you are so gracious to us. Lord, you have not hidden the way to eternal life from us, but you have made it clear, you have opened it, that by faith we can receive it. And Lord, your word is clear. It is such a simple path requiring faith in Jesus Christ that all who believe in him are given the gift of eternal life which will never be taken away from them. Lord, how much better that is than jumping through hoops than comparing ourselves to others, than using 
low standards to deceive ourselves that we will surely enter heaven because we're good enough? What greater assurance there is in the perfect righteousness and obedience of Jesus Christ? What confidence we can have, not in ourselves, but in Him. And Lord, I pray this morning that if there are any here who have been trusting in their own works, their own obedience, their own performance before you, that they would see both your greatness, your perfect standard, that they would see their, their sinfulness, their inability to meet it. Lord, that you'd be merciful to open their eyes to the Savior that is right in front of them. That you would grant them faith to trust, not in themselves, but in Jesus Christ, who you have provided for anyone who believes in him. And Lord, we thank you for the perfect work of Christ. That he has done what we are unable to do, and Lord, unwilling to do in our sinful nature. And yet you, for, for his sake, have accounted us as righteous. Lord, we give you all glory, all honor. Help us to continue resting in the work of Jesus Christ, obeying not to earn our way to heaven, but out of gratitude for the grace that we've received. Lord, we give you all honor and praise. And Father, we pray that as we prepare to celebrate uh, Lord, the uh, baptisms we'll have here in a moment, that you would encourage our hearts with the reality that Jesus does bring new life. 